and gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, Hogan Global's Life Sciences and Healthcare Podcast. On today's episode, I have Marion Palma and Rachel Griven on the podcast to talk about the Hogan Global's Life Sciences Unit, or I would say Sciences Unit. And before we dive deep in about the history and what they actually do, I would like them to introduce themselves. And to kick it off, we decided that Marion is going to take the first one. So Marion, floor is yours. Introduce yourself. Wonderful. Thank you, Julius. So my name is Marion Palmer. I have been a uh, scientist at Hogan Lovells for over 20 years. And um, the role that Rachel and I carry out at the firm is to provide scientific advice on really any legal matter across the firm, which would benefit from a little bit of scientific support. So this can be anything from explaining how an antibody works to trying to look at what kind of bacteria are used for land remediation in, in some obscure part of the world. Rachel, do you want to say a bit more about what we do? Thanks, Marion. Um, so I'm Rachel Gribben. I am a senior scientist with Marion in uh, the science unit based in London. I've also been working at Hogan Levels for more than 20 years, although not as long as Marion. <laughs> I think you kind of encapsulated how varied the role is and... That's what makes it interesting, getting to work on all these different topics in many, with many different people. And I think it's fair to say that the role involves everything from sort of reading quite complex in-house technical data uh, and trying to summarise that to just taking quick phone calls where you explain a concept in, in simple terms. Interesting. And since you just mentioned that you worked for the firm for couple of years for now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, what's the history behind the science unit? Ah, the history. So the history starts back in 1996, a very long time ago for you, Julius. <laughs> and I was sat in a pub um, in London with a friend who was a That trained... is always a good start. <laughs> it was the beginning of the evening. Um, <laughs> uh, with a friend who was a trainee at uh, what was then uh, Lovell White Durrant, in fact. And he said, now, what was your PhD on? So I, I told him, uh, which was, uh, it was essentially um, cell differentiation in the uh, placenta. And he said, oh, yes, well, I think they're looking for somebody at work. Uh, can you give me a copy of your CV? So I, I gave him a copy of my CV and then uh, went on holiday and came back to a number of phone calls, uh, which kindly invited me in for a, a chat about working on one particular case. And that was very interesting. And two of us were taken on, um, a lady called Dunya Shah and me. And we started working on this single case to start with. And then sort of word spread that we were uh, around and various people kind of would wander into our rooms and say, what's P53? What does that do? <laughs> and so after this, we found ourselves working on a number of different cases. And it was decided after about six months that it would be useful to make us a permanent firm-wide resource, uh, which was very reassuring because I was actually writing up my PhD at the time. And I was trying to do that before work and at the end of the day. <laughs> and that launched the Hogan Lovells Science Unit. and. Since then, we moved on to work on a number of different cases. I started working on 
mobile phone science um, and telecommunications in sort of early 2000. And then we worked on uh, a lot of vaccine cases, specifically the measles, mumps, rubella uh, vaccine litigation in um, the UK. And that took up um, quite a number of years uh, till about, I'm just trying to remember when that finished. Rachel, when did MMR finish? I was trying to think of this yesterday, 2005, 2006. Yeah, it's around about then. Uh, and in 2006, we had our 10-year anniversary of the science unit, and we were trying to work out what would be a useful way to celebrate us being around for 10 years. And one of our, our concerns and interests at the time was climate change. So we had a fantastic 10th anniversary party where... We invited a number of clients to come and listen to speakers about climate change. And at the time, this seemed quite a sort of avant-garde thing to do. But it, it's interesting that now <laughs> um, uh, there seems to be a lot more interest in this area. But Rachel, when did you start at the firm? So I came in 2000, which makes it very easy for me to remember how long I've been at the firm. Um <laughs> And I, I came in through a slightly more conventional route, I, I think it's fair to say, than Marion, um, in that I was, I did a PhD at um, University College London, but I was based at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital, which for those of you who are not in the UK is a really well-known, large uh, children's hospital in London. And I had come to the conclusion that staying in basic science research was not for me. I wanted to do something that still used my PhD or used the sort of skills I had learned during my PhD. And so I applied to a variety of jobs. And I think this job was advertised in nature and it was, it was a very um, nondescript advert as law firm adverts used to be in those days. And it was quite intriguing because it didn't really give very much away. And I went to the interview and um, I think I happened to be in the right place at the right time because the reason that they were recruiting is because they needed somebody to help on the measles, mumps and rubella vaccination. And lots of the people, lots of the experts that they were looking at happened to be working at Great Ormond Street Children's Hospital and I knew some of them. So I, that was sort of fortuitous, I suppose. And so I took the job and I still was really none the wiser about what I would be doing. I had no contact with lawyers before. Um, I had a relatively sheltered existence, I think it's fair to say. Didn't really know what lawyers did, certainly didn't know what corporate lawyers did. So it was a, a complete change in my working life. I went from, and Marion will know this, working in jeans and fairly casual clothes to being in an office and wearing suits and having to time record and accounting for every six minutes which is a very different shift in mindset. But, and, and so at the start of my career at, I think it was Lovell's Boozebrek Droster when I started, I was working on the MMR vaccine litigation. And as Marion said, that took up many years. And I think what's happened since is that there are fewer large litigation cases. And so we have shifted from doing, working on one, large case for a very long period of time to working on lots of small matters um, and not just uh, those that are in sort of 
the bioscience sphere. So mm. that's from my perspective, that's been interesting because it's taken me out of my comfort zone of working on something that I knew quite a lot about to having to pick up completely new topics and learn lots of new things. And um, although I still shy away from physics, as Marion will, will know, <laughs> um, I'm trying I'm trying to embrace my inner chemist more recently, <laughs> which has been really quite interesting. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably the background to where I came in. I think it's one of the enormous privileges of the job is being in a role where you get to indulge your interest in learning new things almost on a weekly basis and you get to pick up new areas of science and talk to people who are expert in their field and learn from them and it's I can't think of another role where you have that amazing diversity of scientific knowledge available to you and there's a tremendous privilege as well in working with some of the fantastic lawyers that we've worked with over the years from all different areas because we're able to work with lawyers from any discipline across the across the firm whether they're corporate lawyers or IP lawyers or product liability lawyers or regulatory lawyers so we have a privilege of being able to interact I think probably with with a more diverse group than most people in the firm. And how is the split between I'm guessing um, we, we kind of gathered a couple of notes just for FYI for the people who are listening <laughs> between talking to medics, engineers, and lawyers. Because I would say, and if you talk to me and talk to me about your work, I just understand, I think, a good part of it. But since it's so detailed, what's the difference? How do you approach the communication? How is the response? It's an interesting question. Um, Breach, do you want to take that first or shall I have a shot at it? Um, I think that's part of the, the skill of the job. And it's something that certainly I've had to learn having been there for a long time. And that's tailoring your questions and, and your explanations to the mm. audience. And, and so because we deal with lawyers in different parts of the firm, different groups who have very, very different degrees of scientific knowledge, they're, very they're all very clever people. But some of them may not yeah. have done biology or chemistry since school, which for some of them may have been a very long time ago. And they may not instinctively understand science. And so for those people, you have to try and explain things in a, a very user-friendly way, but without losing the, the actual meaning. Yeah. And for other people, so the IP lawyers, some of whom are dual qualified, some of them are qualified doctors, some of them have got PhDs in, in scientific disciplines um, they need a completely different level of explanation and you will find yourself going into intricate detail into you know very complicated scientific topics and the same goes with the experts so I think one of the things you learn early on is that one of the benefits that we bring is that we are able to translate almost what an expert's saying. Yeah. So when you're in a in a meeting or you're trying to or a telephone call with an expert, they're talking about something as they would do normally. It's very complicated, it's very detailed, but you instinctively know that the lawyer on the other end of the phone or in the room hasn't got a clue about what they're saying. Then you're able to try and interpret that and present it in a way so that everybody is getting the best out of that meeting. And sometimes we just 
make people feel a bit more comfortable. <laughs> so when we're dealing with in-house technical people, from our perspective, much of what they do is utterly fascinating. Um, that may not be the case for everybody. Um, and so having us in a meeting means that a, an in-house technical person can talk to us in a way that they would just talk to a colleague and it enables the lawyer to sit back and take what they need from the meeting uh, without having to necessarily understand everything that that's going on in terms of the technical detail. Um, that definitely makes sense and shows again the bandwidth that you bring along. <laughs> and when you don't turn on the clock and we do a lot of pro bono work for the firm, are you involved there as well? Yes, we've done quite a lot of pro bono over the years. Uh, I'll, Rachel, I'll leave you to talk about the atomic testing veterans. But um, we've done various work in relation to investigations into kind of maltreatment, whether that's in care homes or in orphanages. Recently, I've been fortunate enough to have the full support of the extraordinary pro bono and marketing teams um, all around, but particularly uh, Yasmin Wolji in relation to the development of a screen for protecting healthcare staff when doing COVID-19 um, airway procedures. But Rachel, I'm definitely, to... Sorry, I'm definitely going to uh, link this in the description of this episode because that was a super interesting case. And if you want to read more about that, you can just click in the description and just take a look at what Marianne did there. Thank you, Julius. So, but, um, sorry for interrupting, no, but I just wanted no, to, because no. I think that was quite impressive and super interesting, especially in those times. So um, I, I'm, I'm definitely going to include that. So, uh, But one Rachel, of the long... Yes. Sorry. I was going to just say, Rachel, one of the longest running cases was the um, uh, helping the Gulf War veteran, uh, atomic bomb testing veterans. Yeah, and, and this, it was a really interesting and quite sad case, actually, I think, um, that we were working on for a few years. And the Royal British Legion is a big pro bono client of the firm. And they had a, a whole number of veterans who had who had served um, in, in a place called Christmas, or mainly at a place called Christmas Island, which is in the Pacific, around the time that the atomic bombs were being tested and who had developed a number of different conditions which they thought they were attributable to the exposure that they received then and we did a, a lot of work scouring the scientific literature trying to find evidence to support their claims and and helping with experts and educating the barrister team because they were all working pro bono and they were not barristers that would normally work on cases uh, like these. They had no mm. real scientific background. So there was a lot of hand-holding and a lot of tutorials that we presented so that they could get up to speed. And it was, but it was also the kind of um, the feeling of being able to do something good to help people that, you know, obviously had spent many of their years serving, had got ill and you sort of felt that they needed help to see, you know, all that we could do to try and get them that help. Interesting. Pretty emotional topic then there. So, um, and it's more like of a liability case? Yeah, well, they were trying to, they were trying to get pensions for mm, okay. ill health. Yeah. yeah. 
and and I think the the thing that the team were most affronted by, I suppose, is that lots of veterans from different countries were stationed there around the same time. And I think in almost every case, those countries had actually paid some kind of pension to mm. some kind of okay. payment. But yeah. the, the British government had decided not to. So, you know, it was a sort of element of feeling that they'd, they'd paid their dues. They put themselves on the line. It, they were relatively small amounts of money, actually. Yeah. And there was a, a relatively small number of veterans that yet they weren't getting the payments that they thought they should be. I think one of the interesting experiences from that case was that almost invariably in what we do, we are paid to give an objective assessment of the science. So what's useful to the lawyers is to understand how the, the weight of evidence is displayed in terms of the science in a particular area. And then they can make a legal decision as to what they do on the basis of having a clear understanding of that. Whereas mm -hmm. in that case, uh, the science was in some cases quite good. And in other cases, I think sparse is probably the right word <laughs> to use. Um, and I think that was quite a challenge to us on on our approach to how we address scientific issues because it, it required us to continue to try and look for an answer where ultimately one felt that an answer didn't exist. So okay. it was it was a lesson in perseverance. I, I had another note saying, and I think this, this matter is included there, that your work is a lot of times kind of in the public eye. So you work on projects that are talked about in the media. How do you manage that and your experience with that? That's a good question. I think the, the easiest example on, on that one would be the MMR vaccination, which is something that the controversy about still continues to rumble on. And when we first... Especially in those times we have right now. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> exactly. When we were first working on this, the science was in its infancy. And we... We're in a really privileged position, actually, because we were looking, we were scrutinizing the evidence supporting the anti-vaccine claims, the Andrew Wakefield claims at the time. So we were going through every piece of research that had been published, uh, checking every single reference, tracking it all the way back to the conference abstracts on which it was based. So we had a unique perspective on all of the science relating to this and because it was so much in the press and because people were so divided it it was it was difficult to have conversations with people because they it's didn't one of, know what you know and they, they exactly they don't know what you yeah. know and yeah it's one of those areas of science which it's really easy for people to misunderstand because and there's a common influenced exactly yeah. exactly and there's people who are really you know who are, are clever and well read will take certain inferences from it on the basis of their their yeah. knowledge uh which seem to make common sense and it's only when you go a bit further that you realize that actually that 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 does, doesn't add up so rather than trying to get <laughs> into detailed discussions with people um, I actually uh, had three children on the MMR case. Um, mm -hmm. So my standard response was, well, my children have been vaccinated. I have access to more information. 
probably the most and on the basis of my assessment of that information that my children have been vaccinated and quite often you can only do it in a sense by actions rather than by explanations um rachel yeah i think i i didn't have children during the case but did afterwards and it was all i found it very difficult actually when people would ask me um, once they found out I was working on the case about what I thought and without you obviously can't go into the level of detail that you want to and I think my response was all the people that worked on the case that had small children had vaccinated their children so I think that was that was the only answer you could give um, and there have been so many times when you wanted to say more and you just think no I can't I can't and I can't not just with MMR, there have been other cases like that as well. I think it's it's very interesting when you are working on a case that is in the papers at the same time because you sort of you see all the different perspectives and the way in which it can be presented in different ways by different newspapers and how you know friends and family take different inferences from what's being presented. You have a lot more knowledge. Science is always evolving. One of the things we have to remember is sure. even when we have quite certain views on something our assessment has led us to a specific conclusion and we feel that we have adequately assessed the evidence that's out there we always have to take account of the evidence to come the information that's not been put out there yet the research that's not been done yet and no conclusion is ever completely definite <laughs> And is this one of the most challenging parts of the job, especially in those times when you are working on those cases and talk to peers and friends and family and whatever, and, and you actually not able to get into full detail and explain everything? And is this part of it? It's a part. I don't think it's the biggest part. I, I think in the case of MMR um, and maybe in some other cases as well, the most frustrating thing was it didn't really ever come to a conclusion. So I think we were all working on that case for a very long time and it never did get to trial. And so, you know, and you felt that it, things might have, that might've helped because more evidence would have come out. Um, yeah. And there are, and there are other cases that we work on where again, you know, it sort of doesn't really come to an end, a natural end and you don't really ever get a resolution. And that I quite like not, not happy endings. I quite like endings. <laughs> <laughs> Even when it's not happy. Even At when least... it's not happy. I like there to, is a yeah. finish line, more likely. Yeah, exactly, yes. Um, so that that is, I find that quite tricky, although obviously over time you come to accept it. I think one of the hardest things actually is, I find I have to sort of rein myself in a bit, is when we are working on lots of different cases, interesting cases, is to actually stop going off-piste and looking at all kinds of interesting papers around that area because mm. I find it interesting and stick to the... The question that's being asked and so part of time management and manage the different projects you're juggling around as the unit evolved yeah. into what it is right now yeah and also you want to try and i'm a bit of a perfectionist i want to try and find the best answer to the to the question and sometimes somebody might just want a very quick answer i think the fact that we not feel want to and the on it <laughs> sorry rich i cut across you do you want to say that point again no, no, you carry on. I, I was just going to say the fact that we are fee earners in the same way as the lawyers is sometimes challenging because as scientists, as Rachel said, you do want to 
find the perfect answer. You do want to bottom it out to find <laughs> as close to the truth as it's possible to do. And it's not, not reasonable to bill hours and hours doing that. So I think that's one aspect. But I think the other aspect, which makes it wonderful as well as challenging, is the fact that we work for so many different people on so many different things. And so you can be going from nuclear physics to botany, (laughs) Um, which for us is a big jump (laughs) Um, in the space of half an hour. And you're dealing with a whole new set of people. And you're also dealing with people whose budgets are different. So if they're in different jurisdictions where things are, we are relatively expensive in that jurisdiction, then you have to curtail your time in a way that you don't have to do in another forum. And I think it's that flexibility and that juggling, which sometimes is is a bit of a challenge, but it, it does keep us on our toes. Before we come to the part where I ask you like how you relax and what you do and your spare time. And so um, since we are still in a pandemic, we are parallel on a Zoom call, so we actually can see each other. So you're at home, in your home office. In relation to COVID-19, you already talked about the screen you built. Are there any other matters you work on right now or have worked on which are directly related to the pandemic? Shall I take this first, Rachel? Yes, please. I think COVID is a is a thread that works through, weaves through everything that um, we're doing at the moment because almost, well, all of our clients are obviously affected by COVID and the work that they are undertaking is in some way affected by COVID. Uh, so, for example, one of the things that I'm working on is um, a review of climate-related sustainability policies and the efficacy of certain initiatives that clients have put into place in order to lower their carbon emissions. And of course, one of the things that everybody has to take into account this year is the effect of COVID on their emissions. And so if you're building a renewable energy plant, is that going to be online in time? Are you going to be able to fulfill your targets for renewable energy? Your emissions are likely to be a lot lower (laughs) because chances are that you haven't been operating the way that you normally do. The business travel is going to be cut. So that's one example, thinking about the development of vaccines, development of treatments. These are things that we've worked on previously. And and having had that experience in epidemiology of vaccines and infectious diseases, detailed virology of some uh, viruses and the sort of general pharmaceutical science has really given us a good place from which to look at COVID and to get a feeling of where things will go and what things are going to do. We had a, a sweepstake at a very early stage of when we first went into lockdown. Our group had a big kind of Zoom drinks and they wanted to have a sweepstake on when we would be back in the office. Mm-hmm. And various people around the group were saying uh, sort of two weeks, four weeks. Some brave souls said, oh, well, end of April. And they came to me and I, I almost went on mute. And I thought, no, no, no I'm going to have to do this. <laughs> and so, so I said, well, without masks or without any form of certification or whatever, I would say March 2021. And there was a wow. stunned silence mm. because, well, obviously, you know, people didn't appreciate in the early days quite how this was going to affect things, but it was 
clear from where where we were that this was a, a new disease and it was a whole new way of being that we were going mm. to have to deal with. And one of the big issues from our perspective is the lack of reliability of the literature because, and yeah. I think Rachel will say more on this in a minute, but whereas up until the end of 2019, when we were researching a topic, you would take the topic, you would do your searches, you would pull up some really reputable papers as your baseline, and then you would kind of work out from there. But you could rely on the fact that these studies had been peer-reviewed. In many cases, the work had been replicated. So you had a lot of information on which to base the reliability of your conclusions. But of course, the way things are at the moment is wonderful because everybody is immediately publishing whatever data they have so that there is a collective effort to increase knowledge on COVID. But it also means... Um, apologies for the dogs barking Don't in the worry. background. <laughs> It also means that we can't rely on what's written and we have to accept that any conclusions that we reach are likely to be revised many times as more research comes out, conclusions change, replication occurs, peer review occurs. So it's a completely different world in which we're operating at the moment. And I think, Rachel, you, you'd been looking at some examples of these. Yeah, I mean, I think when this sort of really hit and you start looking for papers and you realise, obviously, there's hardly anything that's been published. And very quickly, there's a, a website which, or a couple of websites, which publish what are called preprints. So you can, you can upload your paper, your manuscript to them to kind of get it out there before it's published in a, in a formal way. And this was always going on, but to some extent it was quite low level. And I think COVID has just made that explode. And I, I registered, I think, for an email a day of papers in the preprint website that mentioned COVID. And the first day I got 300 plus Jeez. just for that day. Oh, wow. and, and, and that's continuing. So every day, 300 plus papers that are uploaded as preprints that are specifically on COVID. And then in addition to those, you have those that are actually formally published on PubMed or somewhere else, and you can get them from mm. PubMed. And there's hundreds on there as well. And so my kind of initial optimism of thinking, right, well, I'm going to keep an eye on what's being published because it is going to move quite fast. And it's just unmanageable. I mean, I could spend 24 hours a day reading them and, and still not, you know, scratch the surface, barely scratch surface. the surface. Yeah, I just wanted to say that. <laughs> um, but the very interesting thing, well, there's two very interesting things. First is that things are, because things are going online before that peer review, as Marion says, it's very difficult to, to know how much you can trust the data. And people are increasingly becoming self-promoters. So they will, they'll upload their paper and then at the same time they'll, release a press release which obviously in these times can go viral very quickly no, yeah. pun, in, no pun intended <laughs> and that's led to a number of interesting and slightly alarming headlines but then the other problem is that things are being peer-reviewed in a hurry so and and there's a very recent example in the lancet which is a paper on hydroxychloroquine and whether it has any benefits in in potentially treating covid and that was peer-reviewed and was published in the normal way but very quickly people sort of wrote in and said hold on a second there are a number of flaws with this study we think you need to look at it again and in a, 
the space of about I think less than two weeks they issued an expression of concern and it's now been retracted and that has huge implications for people working on those treatments because in the case of hydroxychloroquine it, it led to um, a number of trials being stopped completely. As we all have seen a really famous person took it for 20 days and it worked perfectly. A really famous person took it for 20 days. But this is, this is partly why it's so important. Because Which is not a, it's an ongoing therapy. You have to take it all the time and not just for 20 days. But any, just, just saying. To, to be fair to that, in that particular person, the fact that they were investigating hydroxychloroquine for the treatment of COVID-19 yeah. wasn't completely off-piste. There, were, you know, there, is, there is some scientific validity behind it. But at the same time, it's really important to know not only does it have some benefit, but what are the side effects? Yeah, it's, not sure. a, it's not a drug without side effects. And you don't want mm. to make a situation worse. So it's a really, really difficult balance. And I don't, I don't think we found it. And I think there will be issues going forward with papers that are either published too quickly and haven't undergone the same level of scrutiny and also papers that are being released that haven't been peer reviewed. We have an interesting case here in Germany where various scientists who have now kind of start beefing over media so bashing each instead of just kind of trying to work together and make sure they got the right direction they're bashing each other via media just saying um scientist a his study is just is wrong and we are going in the wrong direction with the lockdown etc it's quite interesting to see how the media is using that as well and trying to use different sources to play against each other and is it the same in the uk i think there's some aspects of that i mean it, it's interesting because it's we've always worked with people who are experts in their field and that tends to give them a very well informed very definite perspective on a very narrow angle Yeah. of a problem mm. and that's fine if the problem is only one dimensional sure whereas when you have something which might be sort of like the biological effects of radio frequency radiation or then you need more than one discipline you need your electrical engineers and you need your biologists and they're not you know they may not be two groups that, that naturally <laughs> interact very much and they probably culturally are quite different as well and socially yeah. are quite different and yeah. i think with covid you have the same kind of issues i've recently been doing a, a paper on the potential for uh viral transmission um by um airborne means droplet expo exposure and yeah. aerosols and if you talk to one group about what they mean by an aerosol a biology group, a virology group, it's actually very, very different to what an aerosol physicist means by mm. an aerosol. And so okay. you can actually have two people who are saying things that are entirely correct for their field, but actually are completely different things. And you do need in that circumstance either a better dialogue or you need somebody who is able to stand back and unite both of those. Both sides. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> out of my kind of comfort zone, but <laughs> that's that's the reason you guys are here to get 
this going. It's uh, really impressive. So thank you for giving me insights here. So before we come to an end, and I could go on, uh, we are already at 45 minutes, which oh, is really, no, it's amazing. I really enjoy this conversation. So if you don't um, go through um, 300 plus COVID related <laughs> papers, <laughs> <laughs> And I hope you don't do that in your spare time as well. Just um, So what do you do to relax when you get off work and turn off the clock and enjoy your time at home because you're not allowed to go outside right now, really? So. <laughs> I'm going to let Marion answer that first. Oh, okay. What do I do to relax? I'm I'm not an athlete, unlike Rachel. I'll let Rachel go, <laughs> come on and talk about that. I I quite like going in the garden. My personal hobby is sculpture, so wow. I wander off into the corner and, and play with clay, which <laughs> gives me some something else to focus on, which is uh, doesn't really involve my brain in quite the same way. Scientist and artist. No, no, no. <laughs> let's, let's not overplay that one. <laughs> um, I, having seen examples of her sculpting, I can actually say she's really very good. See, she I was right. She wouldn't ever admit this because she's very modest, but she is very good at it. Um, but but I'll, I'll hand over to Rachel, who is an athlete par excellence. No, no, no. I am not an athlete. <laughs> What do I do in my in my spare time? I run. <laughs> I run a lot. I was I was the person when lockdown was announced in the UK that was on Google trying to find a, a treadmill <laughs> for purchase because I was worried that as in some countries you would be completely confined to barracks um, and not able to go outside. Fortunately in the UK that hasn't happened, so I've still been able to go running. But so you I, stepped away from the idea of getting a treadmill or did you buy it? No, I didn't. I was, I didn't mainly because if I get one, I want to kind of all bells and whistles one and they'd pretty much gone very quickly. So um, I thought I'll hold, hold off. And I'm lucky enough to live in a part of the UK, which is very beautiful and also hilly, but not so many people and you can get in the countryside very quickly. Mm -hmm. So I have been spending, well, I often run outside of lockdown, but during lockdown, I have been running in the Chiltern Hills up and down finding new paths um, and trying to trying to um, counteract the effects of eating far too much cake, which I'm also baking. I'm not going to comment on that from my side. <clears throat> <laughs> so it's another way to kind of sh shut off your brain and just um, exercise. Yeah, it is. And, and um, I've got three, three quite um, noisy boys. So... <laughs> I use it as a as a kind of I know this sounds ridiculous, but a bit a time of peace and quiet <laughs> out of my house. I understand where you come from. I have two, so uh. and they are they are just two and five, so there's wow. potentially a different level of noise going on at my house. <laughs> <gasps> Thank you. I sent you an email, a quick email before. What I'm trying to introduce to the podcast is like one of the ending question is if you have the chance to have a dinner with three people, dead or alive, who would those people be? And since we are just at 50 minutes, I want to know why, but keep it brief. <laughs> <laughs> Rach, do you want to go first? I've got a quite an eclectic mix of people. So um, one of them's a, a chap called Adharanand Finn who is a author slash runner. And in fact, Marion bought me the first book, I think. Um, and he's written a lot of books of running with different communities, which I find 
really really interesting so he's run with kenyans and japanese and um he's done ultra running so mm -hmm. i could ask him a lot of questions um the second is my grandmother who's no longer with us but i think in the current climate i think she would have some very and having lived through world wars and austerity and kind of trying times i think she'd have some very interesting advice and i'd be i think she would be a great person to talk to and the third um is michelle obama just because <laughs> diverse group interesting and no that scientists be... no scientists, <laughs> no scientists. <laughs> and you actually um invited another lawyer into onto your table since yeah michelle that's is true i hadn't that's even, interesting yeah. Yeah. Rachel, that's <laughs> too long working with lawyers, clearly. You, you can't disconnect. <laughs> so, um, I'm not dodging the question, but what I find interesting and inspiring and exciting is new ideas or concepts where you have to put down what your understanding or your vision of the world and your place in it is, and you have to almost pick up a completely new window to look through and see the world from a completely different perspective. And this was brought home to me while being on a, a call with the Real, the uh, race ethnicity at Hogan Lovells Network the other day, listening to brave people talking about their experiences. And so choosing three people for me, I think would just play into what I think I already understand. So I would rather have three random people chosen for me over the history of time because this is a way that I'm more likely to learn something new and get a new perspective on things. That's a good answer. So no, you don't like the <laughs> right, she's shaking her head. I'm laughing because Marin and I <laughs> as as we both discuss on a regular basis are very different people, which is why we work so well together because we kind of complement each other. And mm. She always has a way of getting out of answering a question, which is so eloquent. <laughs> whereas, whereas I diligently try and think of three people. Rachel is so well behaved compared to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, on the other I'm hand, a, <laughs> I you follow could rules. end up with three different scientists in your same lane and just get a huge fight and nobody will eat because the dinner would end early. No, I, I, it's, um, yes. <laughs> so before we will finally end it, are there anything, um, any comments you want to do? Anything you want to pluck in the end before we all head back to into our office in our daily work? For me, I would just like to say that it has been an amazing experience working in this role for the last two decades plus. And I've met some amazing people and I've had the opportunity to work with fantastic teams on interesting matters. But one of the greatest privileges has been working with Rachel. And I'm really grateful for that. I, I can't really follow that, can I? I mean, I, I <laughs> what just, do I say? I just saw her face and she was just starstruck right now. It's like, what should I say now? <laughs> I think that's a, a, a really nice... Generally. I think that's a really nice know to to end this conversation so marion rachel thank you very much for joining me today and looking forward to work with you in the future so thank you thank you julius thanks
That's it for today. If you have further questions for Marion or Rachel, reach out via HoganLovels.com. In addition, so you're not missing out on any information regarding industry developments as well as our activities in this sector, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter, leave a like, leave a comment. Thank you for tuning in. We're going to return with more in about two weeks. So please join us again when we're talking The Cure.